This is part two of a three-part podcast. All right, so next one is from Justin Gonzalez. And so he says, I would like to hear him talk about making a Cuban culture bed without wood. When he was at Seattle for the Permese meetup, he talked about digging down a foot on each side and piling it up to make a three-foot hugel. So I'm not really sure what he's talking about, but I thought, I don't know, maybe you okay. would understand that you were in Seattle. So I got a couple of things. <clears throat> One is is that I, I wish to dissuade people from making a three-foot hugel culture bed. I wish to encourage people to make a six-foot-tall fugu culture bed. And I think that the easy way of doing it is that you're going to kind of like mark out where your fugu culture bed is going to be, and thus you're inadvertently marking out where your paths are going to be, your paths between the fugu culture bed. Then you're going to dig down where your paths are and take that material and flop it up where the hugelkultur beds go. Mm-hmm. So um, you're going to, you know, potentially dig down two or three feet deep to come up with the material to make a hugelkultur bed that's three feet tall. And and if your hugelkultur bed is three feet tall, and the trench you just dug is three feet deep you have kind of sort of made a hugelkultur bed that is a total of six feet tall. <clears throat> now, at this point, we haven't... So you're saying, let's make a hugelkultur bed without wood. Right. And most places, you've got grass or sod. And so it's kind of like, all right, let's say your sod goes down eight inches deep. And so... Um, You've got this sweet spot in the middle that has a lot of sod, but uh, and then the bottom part of the hugel culture is just dirt, but the top part of the hugel culture has a lot of sod mixed in with dirt, and <clears throat> that will work. Now, what one of the things I should also mention is is that while there's no wood in that, um, Seth built in, in Dayton in 2012. He built a bunch of hugelkultur beds, and they ran out of wood. But what he did is he just planted an enormous amount of potatoes. And then, of course, the potatoes will grow and grow and grow, and, you know, you might grow more potatoes than you can actually eat. And potatoes have this great way of they just keep coming back and coming back. And so in which case, there's a lot of carbon, because potatoes are mostly carbon. There's a lot of carbon that will build up inside the hugelkultur bed that did not come from wood. Oh, yeah, it's brilliant. But there was a lot of other organic matter that went into these particular hugelkultur beds. Um, so the other okay. thing is is that uh, I've, like around here at, uh, at base camp, we have built berms. And then we've planted a bunch of stuff in these berms. So they have no wood on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are not hugelkultur beds. They are strictly berms. And stuff kind of grows on them. But, you know, we plant some things. We throw down some mulch. Some stuff grows. You keep doing that. In time, there will be organic matter on the inside. 
And so is it plus not, it's still not hookah culture, but you will basically get a garden place, which is kind of what we're looking for anyway. And um, if you grow the right thing, then they don't need irrigation. And if you mulch it heavy enough, you know, it'll almost be like a hookah culture bed. It just, yeah, and then, you know, it'll never be as good, but eh, it's up there. And then, well, I remember when I was out there, you were talking about um, taking, like, balls of really good soil and burying them in your really shitty soil. Do you remember talking about that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I can't so really I, exactly remember what, what the uh, theory was behind that. Okay. So, like, let's say you've got a patch that has really amazing garden soil. And you're kind of thinking, like, okay, I want soil that good over in my hugel culture. But if you, if you take this, like, let's say you've got a five-gallon bucket. Like, let's say Kelly Ware brought a five-gallon bucket of amazing garden soil. And I, I mentioned Kelly Ware because she's, like, uh, an hour and a half, two hours from us. And so it's kind of mm-hmm. like, uh, all right, let's say she showed up with a bucket of amazing garden soil that really kind of fits for our general area. And we're like, oh, yeah, we want it. We want this kind of soil to grow everywhere. I mean, surely inside the soil is just the perfect kind of bacteria, the perfect kind of fungus. There's probably a bunch of uh, earthworm pods in here, stuff like that, all the things that we want for amazing garden. And uh, so... We want it everywhere, and if we just spread it out evenly, then, um, you know, it'll be, it'll be spread fairly thin. But here's the thing. In the moment you spread it really thin, you kind of kill all the bacteria that's in there. And, right. and you kind of kill all of the lovely things in there that make it such awesome garden soil. So don't do that. Um, and instead... When you're making your hugel culture bed, take like you know a a giant handful, a a big gob. You could do it with a shovel maybe, but it's got to be a pretty healthy big gob. And then you'll put that inside your hugel culture bed in a spot. And and the idea is is that it will spread, it will it will move around, it'll it'll do its magic stuff. Um, okay. And yeah. eventually, I, like I mean, granted, bacteria don't exactly move super, super fast, but <laughs> right. it'll, it'll spread out from that point. Now, Kelly Ware literally did come down here. I mean, you know, you, it's like you get a patch where you say, I'm going to put a garden there someday. You just try to keep Kelly Ware out. Just try. <laughs> He's going to oh, yeah, show no, up. I was there. I was there. Yeah. She's like, well, I filled my bayonet all the way to the top with every kind of growing growing at my house. Oh, and buckets. And so she goes around, she starts planting this stuff everywhere. Well, she's effectively doing exactly what I just said. Yeah. Each plant that she plants has a gob of her garden soil getting planted, and it will spread around. Now, yeah. and of course, yeah. so you met Kelly Ware, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, of course... You know, we just got to, and, and Kelly Ware's been on this podcast before. 
she, of course, is amazing. She's a fountain of energy and plants. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's insane. I don't know how she has so much energy. <laughs> She's awesome. All right. Um, okay. Did we answer the okay. question? Fill the hoop across your head with the school. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you got into that. Okay. So the next one is from Kai Dewey, and he says, uh, how do you make 12 to 15-foot Hugel berms people-friendly without making them look more like terraces? Or what would be a good way to create paths on steep slopes without creating landslides and cliffs? <laughs> So Kai Doobie lives out here uh, at Wheaton Lab. And, and while I was laying here in my weird little bed on my back, <laughs> then, then he's, he's come in here a couple of times. And, you know, it's kind of weird. You have to stand over that end of the room. can't really have eye contact. <laughs> and that's feeling. So it's really awkward, but he's been a trooper about it. But um, I know exactly what he's talking about. Now, what Seth Holzer does, which is, um, the smart way of doing it is that you basically, if you're going to make a berm, like oh, I'm going to make a 15-foot-tall berm right here, then um, normally, like when you make a hoop culture, if it's six feet tall and it stands pretty upright, it is six feet wide at the base. Um, and that's pretty that's pretty steep. That's a nice, steep, a good, steep hoop culture. Um, so if you do something that is 15 feet tall, then it's, it's fair to say it will be 15 feet wide at the base, and that's without any paths on it. Yeah. So what Zip Holzer advocates is something that's more like 30 feet wide at the base, and it has a terrace on either side. Now, okay. Kyle's saying, how can you do this without making them look like terraces? And it's kind of like, all right, so so Seth has pretty much laid out something that has like this seven or eight foot wide path on either side and looks very terraced. But what's going to happen is, is stuff is going to grow. And when that stuff yeah. grows, your paths will become much narrower. They started off as like eight foot wide, and then they end up being like four feet wide. And and you're, like, being careful not to step too close to the edge to slough the edge away or something, you know? So mm-hmm. so it's like suddenly your path became very narrow. And he and I have talked about it, and then we have an issue here. I mean, here at base camp, we're on this solid rock. And the Fisher yeah. Price house is sitting on this narrow platform, which was probably blasted out or something. And and so we wanted to try to make it so that just outside the Fisher Price House on the downhill side, there was a berm, a hoople berm, so that we don't have to look at the rug or hear from the rug mm-hmm. or be aware of it. It's more like a sanctuary. A sanctuary. So uh, <laughs> it's like okay, so how do we how do we do a rhodectomy? And uh, and then plus, you know, have lovely growies and stuff. And you look at the window, you're looking at the growies, you're not looking at roadie bit, you know. So it's mm-hmm. like, 
but we've got this narrow, 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 narrow place. So then we have to make very steep, very tall berms. And so Kai has been out planting those last fall and this spring. And it's kind of like, you know, to plant the stuff near the top, it would be nice if there was a path there. Now, we've had a couple of small paths that were like eight inches wide, but you use those paths, and a lot of times they slip. Now, there are ways of putting, like, a log up there and, and attach it there so that way it kind of holds the dirt up and, and you've got a, a, a better path. But it's like it's only going to be, like, a foot wide max, and once everything starts to grow like crazy, that path is going to disappear. It'll be gone. So, and then really, in order to be able to support the path, the berm has to become wider. There's there's really no other way to do this. If there's going to be a path, the berm has to be wider. And here, we just don't have that space. Now, if you wanted to, on the downhill side, you could try to make it wider, but we don't have any soil. So all the soil that makes up this berm was imported from the lab. And it's like, okay, now you're talking about bringing in another 20, 25 dump truck loads, only now it's really hard to get them back there because of the whole steepitude thing. Yeah. So it's like, you know, there's really, there's not a, you know, an easy way to get that material back there. And uh, so, you know, a lot of people with a lot of wheelbarrows, maybe. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just not practical. Now, the thing is, it's like, okay, so let's say your situation is that you, you're in a similar spot. I mean, I, I kind of feel like it's kind of silly to talk about our unique thing here, but I think it's not that unique. There's going to be other instances where people want to have a hobo culture berm a lot like what we have here. Yeah. Tall, narrow, no path. And and so it's like, now what do you do? And so the one thing, uh, the, the, the wording, the phrase that Evan came up with is kind of funny, so it's all kind of stuck. And it's that you, you need to have a siege ladder. And, siege and so... Ladder. So basically, you have a ladder that you can pick up and move around that'll, that'll go on. Now, a siege ladder comes from, you know, it's like, okay, you're watching a television show, and somebody's got a castle, and there's a guy at the top of the castle yelling at the invaders, I fart in mm-hmm. your general direction. And then the people, the invaders, are down on the ground looking up there, and they're making rude gestures. And it's like, you know, we're going to come up there and kick the shit out of you. And right. so you kind of need a ladder, a siege ladder. Oh, now, um, so the thing is, is that come up with a siege ladder, there are certain properties to it that we don't need. So let's, let's, we don't really want to build a siege ladder, but it is still fun to call it a siege ladder. And and so the thing I have now suggested is that we do have an orchard ladder. And so an orchard ladder has a really – an orchard ladder is an amazing thing. Why would anybody buy a stepladder when you can buy an orchard ladder? 
because an orchard ladder can go anywhere outside. It, it's a three-point ladder. So wherever you put it, it's like crazy stable, whereas at least far more stable than, like, um, uh, um, the, the, uh, so now my brains have left me. I just uttered the word. What kind of ladder did I just say, like, one minute ago? Uh, no, the other one. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Okay, what so the ladder with four legs. The ladder with four legs. Those suck outside. Okay, those are those are terrible. But then the orchard okay. ladder is amazing. And and so you go out there and you stick the orchard ladder like anywhere on this lumpy, bumpy, crazy ground, and it always is stable. And then the side that you climb up has a really, really wide base that makes it even more stable. Oh, it's so stable. Yeah, but so that won't thing, work for you, Holter. The thing I'm advocating for a hula culture is to, like, okay, pull in the third leg and then attach something near the top, maybe at the top, that sticks out like a foot, you know, like some something that's going to be a bit. So that way, when you lay the ladder down on the hugelkultur bed, then you're not smashing all the growies. Well, except for whatever's right at the ah. top. That that thing at the top is laying into the growies, but the rest of the ladder is hovering over the growies. And because the base of the orchard ladder is so crazy wide, it should provide amazing stability. And then you can go up and down the ladder, planting and harvesting and whatever it is that you want to do. But we okay, still call have, it a stage ladder been, because that's just fun. Okay. But this is what you guys have been using? We have not – we have an orchard ladder. I think we might even have uh-huh. two orchard ladders. Um, but we have not made this modification yet. But okay. when, But right. basically, I do be the guy asking – this very question right now, um, he stood here in my room, and while laying on my back, I totally made this up, and I think it's brilliant, if I do say so myself. But I don't know if that's the stupid talking or the arrogant. <laughs> Could be. I don't know. I, I, I mean, it sounds, it, it sounds like it could work. I, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing someone try it out, though. I'm looking forward to it, too. Okay. All right. Are ready for the next question? Sure. Yeah. So James Fry says, some say it makes no sense in dry climates. I have friends who are trying it in arid places, but it's too early to see results. So does it make sense in dry climates, or should we leave it to stuff in those wet alps? Okay, um, so Sepp has done this in the deserts of Spain. Okay. Um, and, and it's worked. Uh, okay. Now, one, one concern about it being, because part of it is, is, is that, like, and I think that in the deserts of Spain, I mean, I think we're talking about, like, four to six inches of rainfall per year, but I'm not sure. We would have to look it up. But... Um, uh, the, the concern would be is that is the inside is I mean are we are we talking about like we're going to take all that wood 
and are we going to basically mummify the wood? Or is it going to hold enough moisture that it will rot? And right. the thing about these areas is, is that they still get, like, six inches of rain a year. Like, let's take it six inches of rain. That's, that's a very, I mean, that's desert. That's very deserty. And um, so one thing that's going to happen is that you get your six inches of rain that lands on it, and, and it's going to soak in about six feet. So it, it is going to fill all those spaces with moisture. All those parking spots to hold moisture are going to get filled. Now, here's another critically important thing. Um, not only are we um, uh, holding the moisture, a little moisture that comes through, but there's, there's more, and that is that we are adding texture to the landscape. So when the wind comes by to dry everything out, we're having a lot less wind because the wind, if we shape, we have a lot of hoop culture beds, we do lots and lots of hoop culture beds, and <clears throat> we've got a lot of texture. The wind can't get down between the hoop culture beds. So we're retaining more of our moisture as well. And, and we might be slowing things down enough so we might even be harvesting moisture out of the wind. So we might have yeah. more morning dew because we're slowing it down. So it's okay. like there is moisture in that wind, but as long as the wind is blowing fast, it's desiccating. But if we can get that, that air to slow down enough and then our temperature stuff, you know, bounces around enough, then we can, we can develop a little bit of dew. And if we can harvest some of that dew in our home culture, we have even more moisture. So, okay. I mean, it goes on and on. So, so is it worth it in crazy dry places? Oh, yes. It, oh, yes. So, uh, it, so some say it makes no sense in dry climates, and I say that those some have not yet tried it. In fact, the story is that Sepulter is out there in Spain, and this is that place where they brought in the 20 leading experts in the world about how to reverse desertification. And Sep is one, and then the other 19 all think Sep is crazy. <laughs> and, and so it's this, it's this kind of competitive thing. And so in the end, you know, Sep does all sorts of amazing things. He creates lakes. You know, uh, and 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 he brings all kinds of luscious. And then there's the whole thing about the hugu culture, and uh, this is where they, they the other guys were saying you can't do it unless you add drip irrigation. So he did uh, um, tests on it. on the half of them. He did drip irrigation on the other half. He did not, and they both grew crops that were about the same. And then the next year they took away the drip irrigation on the second sample set that had the drip irrigation, and everything died. Now, the funny thing is, is like uh, with 2012, 
So Seth came to Dayton in May of 2012, and he built nearly a kilometer of culture bed. And um, the land manager there decided to put drip irrigation on a bunch of it. He huh. couldn't afford drip irrigation for all of it. But when I came by, it looked like the stuff that was receiving irrigation was about the same as the stuff that did not receive any irrigation. And now in my video, I only show the stuff that did not get irrigation um, because that was the stuff that I thought was exceptionally profound. And this was the okay. first year's culture bed. It was one of the driest uh, summers that this area had ever seen. And in my video, I show how the surrounding areas are all brown and the air is a little bit smoky because it was a forest fire season, a forest fire year. And yet, you know, these hugelkultur beds that had received no irrigation, you know, had all kinds of food growing out of them. So um, I know that that, you know, people are going to dismiss it and not count it um, because it was in an area that has, you know, more moisture overall. But this was during a very extremely dry summer right after the hugelkultures had been built. Um, and so, uh, uh, I don't know, people, I mean, this was in an area that gets a lot, of, it gets uh, 20 inches of, of moisture every year. So okay. it's kind of hard to count it after that. But anyway, there are, you know, Seth Fulcher has his stories from very dry climates of doing this. Right. Okay. All right. <clears throat> All right. Okay. Switching gears a little bit. Um, John Saltvate, Saltvate uh, says, "When it when is it worth it to put small hugels in suburban lots? I know Paul is the rural acreage guy, but most Americans live in suburbs. How can we make it work?" Okay. I think that the primary thing that is keeping people from building them six feet tall is the neighbors, and right. Uh, when you live in a suburban or even urban, because there's like there are houses that I think classify as urban. I mean, they're really close to town, and um, they have a very tiny lot, but they do have a lot. And um, and then there's suburban, which is going to be like out of town a little ways. You might have like as much as even an acre to work with. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but, but uh, the, the primary concern that I've heard from people over and over and over again is the neighbors. What will the neighbors think? If you build a six-foot-tall Google culture bed, especially if you build it in your front yard or <laughs> especially if you build it in that little space between the sidewalk and the road, then, then people... People could get wiggy about that, yeah. and um, I, I think that that's a very real concern because suddenly they bring in the department of making you sad, and they want to fuck up your shit. And so it's like, and and some people some people start freaking out about this kind of stuff, especially because they know nothing about it, and. And uh, and this is, I guess this is their learning technique, is to go over to your neighbor and yell at them and say awful things and, and make up 
you know, uh, stories about, like, you know, because you built that, it's going to destroy our home values. Uh, you're going uh. to bring women into the area, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, they've got lists <laughs> of crazy shit that they just made up, and then they state yeah. it as absolute fact, and, it's, and actually they're full of shit. But it, it, perception is really what they, they want to get along with your neighbors is what yeah. people want to So it seems like, all right, so I've been asked this so many times. I've got a couple of different answers. One is do this, do the six-foot-tall ones right away in your backyard. And then if anybody yeah. starts pinching about it, then I would, I would say that if they call the cops or they call whoever, it's like, say, they're a peeping Tom. What are they? I, yeah. I'm back here naked, and, <laughs> and my children are naked. Are they looking at my children naked? Are they some kind <laughs> of uh, a pedophile? You know, what is this? This is my private area. You know, I don't want pedophiles looking in at my stuff. <laughs> All right, so backyard. Do the do it in the backyard. Um, now, uh, now let's talk about the front yard. We all know that there's stories of people that have gone through all kinds of shit. Like they built stuff in their front yard. And uh, then, then the, the local government came and ripped it all out or poisoned it or, or fined them into oblivion or whatever. And uh, here's, here's my first bit of advice is that um, <clears throat> if anybody, if you build something in your front yard and uh, uh, they, the government comes to fuck up your shit because of it, I, I think you should let Jack Spirko know <laughs> because <laughs> – because uh, I, because somebody did that. Somebody had like the the popo all up in their shit, and they call somehow Jack Spirico found out about it, and his audience just came down, was brought the wrath, you know, and and it's like, oh, it was awesome. It was just awesome. <laughs> so don't feel so much fear in that space. Now let's say. Let's say, uh, okay, I still want to try and get along, but I want to introduce it slow and easy or something like that. So here's, here's the answer I came up with after answering it so many times. Get a feel for what you think is going to be, like, okay. Like, like if you go out and you build a raised bed garden that's just two feet tall, and you think that that's going to fly with your neighborhood, like no one's going to give you grief about that, then then that's what you do. Build one that's two feet tall. And then the next year, add another 8 to 12 inches to that. And then the next year after that, add another 8 to 12 inches. And so basically just make it bigger each year and do yeah, it gradually it. so people can get used yeah. to it. So um, yeah. it, the, the, at two feet tall, it won't be as amazing and awesome as it would be at six feet tall, but right. you will get some of the benefit. It will begin. Mm -hmm. And and so then you can start adding the texture to the landscape and just just add and add and add each, each year as, you know, and as your neighbors appear to be comfortable with it. Um, yeah. 
Now, and, and of we, course, we it is entirely possible that some neighbor will come over and totally lose their shit anyway, and I, I really don't have answers for that. It's, it yeah. depends on what flavor of crazy they bring. And, um, and it's kind of like, this is why I like going out of the country and then building berms, because then I can do whatever I want, and no one sees what I'm doing, so no one's bringing crazy to my doorstep. Yeah. And it's almost an effort to try to minimize the crazy because people are crazy. So did I, was that a good enough answer, you think? Yeah. When is it worth it? Yeah. I think okay. Good. When is it worth it? Okay. I I would put small hugels in suburban lots. Um. I'd say always. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. The idea of having a flat garden is mind-boggling to me. I I cannot. I I. I just I just can't do it anymore. Um, plus, I gotta say that that the first garden I tried to grow, which was sometime around '93 or '94, and it all died. That was all flat. But but in Missoula, that particular plot, the soil depth was about a half an inch. I had about a half inch of soil, and I had a lot of big rocks. Yeah. And so that's why that my garden didn't do well. So you know, once I read up on gardening, the first thing I did was build a raised bed. And um, I, my, my first raised beds were probably a foot and a half tall. And then I moved to Colorado, and those were two feet tall. Because I, I just had to have garden. I, and I just had to do it. And then, yeah, uh, um, yeah. so... I, I I cannot imagine having flat space. So always, yeah. always Google culture and and grow them grow them big. Well, you know, get as if you just I mean, seven feet is probably the recommended height, and it will shrink down to six feet. So um, right. uh, I would maybe even maybe even bigger. I mean, Steph talks about what's the perfect height to to build them for harvesting, and I think. I think it's wise to build them, you know, 10 or 20% larger to compensate for, ha- for how much they will shrink in the first couple of years. Okay. All right. So, Erwin DeCoin says, <laughs> how do you avoid unwanted fungi spreading to nearby fruit trees? I don't. Okay. I mean, it's it's kind of like um, life has. I mean, the kind of hugelkultur is going to have fungus. Where you have high yeah. carbon, you're going to have a lot of high fungus. And there's yeah. a certain number of parking spots for fungus. It's. I mean, new fungus will move into new wood. Now, the the other thing is, is that um, okay? So, like, let's say you've got a fruit tree, and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I do not. There's there's about a hundred thousand varieties of unwanted fungi that could come to this retreat, and then there's an equal number of fungi that is desirable. 
that could come to this retreat. And I think they're pretty much going to all show up. Now, yeah. as long as your fruit tree is strong and healthy and vibrant, it will not be overcome by the ucky stuff. Okay. So I would say that, you know, how how does your leaf count look? How does your what is the overall health of your tree? Is the leaf count so high that you cannot see sun through the tree? You know, and and it's like uh, I mean we could talk about I mean there are there are things that involve pruning. If you've got cross branches and they're touching, those are going to expose, those are going to rub to the point to create a point where unwanted fungi can enter. And so you're going to need to cut one of those branches off. Well, and then, of course, from schools of pruning, there's, like, stuff where it's like, we're going to, like, you know, take out a lot of this tree. Now, and, of course, both Sepulcher and and Masanobu Fukuoka both agree on, like, trying to grow trees in such a way that you never have to prune them. Yeah. And and it's like, okay, that can be done. But you'll notice that Seth Holzer, when he walks his land, and all of the people that work on his land, they all have a set of pruners on their hip. Why is that? So, and and the answer is, is that, when they go by a tree and they see, you know, some serious shit going down on that tree, then then they'll prune that off. They'll prune it early. Right. But they're they're just doing exactly this. They're trying to prevent a sore spot from opening up that will attract unwanted fungi. Now, another one is is like if you got a crotch in a tree, you got to get rid of that right away. So yeah. that's the way. Um, but it's like. You know, some people are like, "Oh, you've got to, you've got to take out." Because, like, really, the the art of pruning is got some strong positives to it. Um, and the idea is is that you want to improve the leaf count throughout the canopy while minimizing the total amount of bark to keep the tree alive. So it's like if you've got two branches running in parallel then it's kind of like you only need one of those. Otherwise, you're trying sure. to keep twice as much bark alive. Because the other tree, the other branch that's in parallel, if you took out one and left one, it would grow up. So then when you go to the, the school of, like, pruning every year, there is a wisdom to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're in the world of permaculture. It's like, how can I do this while being even lazier? Yeah. And, and Masanobu Fukuoka learned that if you take trees that have been getting pruned every year and then you stop pruning them, those trees will die. Yeah. So, holy shit, that's not good either. Yeah, this is one of the most painful lessons. So, um, now I think we're probably talking about, we're talking about hugu culture. We're probably talking about more about in the soil. And I'm going to say yeah. that the unwanted fungi is already there. Um, <clears throat> probably. Uh, can't be really, really sure. But, but really, a lot of it is about having a good aerobic breakdown of systems. And so 
Uh, Hugelkultur is really kind of cool because it encourages a far more aerobic soil by just being more upright. And then the other thing is, is that as the wood rots on the inside, it creates air pockets, which also helps to have more air exchange. So now we're having a more aerobic environment than an anaerobic environment. And uh, it's, it's like how uh, Dr. Elaine talks about in soils. It's like so much of this is really about being aerobic. Dr. Elaine Ingham. Yeah. So, yeah, so I think... the more about just having a good, healthy tree rather than trying to do something to avoid the fungi. If, if an unwanted fungi gets onto a nearby fruit tree and is, like, making the tree sick, I mean, you could, if, if, if you've got um, 200 acres of trees, then you're probably going to think, like, yeah, there's a lot of trees that have got fungi on them, and don't worry. That fungi is an agent, that, that unwanted fungi is an agent of Mother Nature and is taking out the trees that shouldn't be there anyway. They're taking, you know, yeah. she's taking out the weak trees as is her yeah. job. That's what she's supposed to be doing. On the other hand, if you've got a tiny plot and this is your only fruit tree, then, um, you know, there's like a list of things that we can do. I would suggest listening to the podcast um, about that cherry tree. That was uh, me and Bill were like looking at his cherry tree and uh, uh, his cherry tree looked very, very sad. And it was succumbing to... Uh, unwanted fungal problem. And so we, we talked about that particular tree. That might have some advice for that particular thing. But like, if okay. nothing else, if you just add a good high-quality mulch over the tree, that will oftentimes do strong, magical things for the tree. Um, you know, but it's got to be a very high-quality mulch. Uh, mm-hmm. And the tree will come back to life. I mean, you can do things to, to save a tree. But um, I, I like I like a more permaculture approach of like the net tree shouldn't be there, or yeah. as Seth Poulter says, then we've done something wrong, and we need to learn what we've done wrong and, and fix it. And so uh, the the wrong thing might be that we we tried growing this tree in a spot that wasn't good for that tree. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I, okay. I'm probably um, making the questioner nuts, um, but but hopefully I've helped some small bit. Next question. Yeah. Okay. From Jason Zach, he says, when piling up the wood core, should one try to neatly place the logs, branches, etc., closely together to eliminate as much airspace in between as possible? No. In, in fact, yeah. Uh, it's kind of got to be the opposite. So you're going to lay down your logs and sticks and stuff, and there's going to be spaces between them, at least an inch or two of space between each each one. And uh, and I've seen this happen many times where people will then pile on more wood on top of that, and it's like, no, 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 no. One layer. One layer. Now put soil on to the point that you can't see wood anymore and now add another layer of wood. And so 
the idea is is that as you do this, then you're filling the spaces in between the, the branches with, uh, with soil, but there's still going to be air bits in there where you just couldn't quite fill it. So it's like you've got some soil, you've got some air, you've got some branches. You know, that's, that's the great recipe. Now, of course, you know, oh, please, 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 uh, as much as you can, and sometimes you just can't, but as much as you can, try to introduce diversity inside the hulu culture bed. So, so you've laid down a bunch of logs. And you've got a single layer of logs or branches. Then it's like, you know, here is some grasses that I cut right over there. I chopped them, and I'm throwing them into the hugelkultur here as a blob. And uh, uh, look, I, I, I got, like, some cow poop, and I'm going to throw it in over there as a blob. Please don't spread it out. Now, it's, it's possible that you could take some of these grasses and some of this manure and spread it out very thinly, like, like it's scattered. Like, it's definitely not a solid layer, you know. So uh, um, enough to be able to add some nitrogen here and there kind of a thing. But uh, so if you did that and did an occasional big blob, that would be lovely. The idea is is to add variety, to add diversity to the inside of the Google culture bed. Um, all right. So, what was, did I okay. answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. You said no. Do the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, okay. All right. Next order of business. From Mike Holmes, what types of plants are good for controlling erosion in a newly built bed? Grasses. Grasses, which, okay. Which, which I know are like the absolute worst thing to grow when you're trying to grow your garden because grasses will take over everything. But yeah, grasses yeah. have these amazing webby roots which, you know, generally control erosion. Now, there are some nitrogen fixtures which uh, are sold for erosion control. Um, and uh, uh, I'm trying to remember, like, crown vetch is one, but it's really difficult to get established. Uh, <laughs> I, I really hate to say hemp, but uh, hemp was one of the things that used to be grown in ditches oh. for erosion control. Um, nice. You know, so so there's there's that, uh, but I to me it just seems like wow grasses have amazing webby roots to just kind of hold everything together, and then okay. once you're kind of getting going, then grasses are great for chop and drop, and and providing a good deal of mulch, and and you can, in time if you care for it enough, you you can eliminate. Uh, the grasses. Okay. So, Do you have, like, a particular one that is your favorite or just kind of like a combination of them? I would have to say you probably always want to use a combination to see what goes. Now, if you if you have any access to Seth Holzer's, uh, you know, einkorn seed or what he calls Russian corn, then mm -hmm. um, 
you know, that stuff that grows like eight and a half feet tall on terrible, horrible soil. Uh, I mean, the great thing is, is that it just makes so much organic matter. It's just so crazy, enormous, giant, big that uh, it's like, oh yeah, how about how about some of that? Um, I've I've been using a fair bit of tall fescue, uh, and I use a special variety of tall fescue because your standard you know, original tall fescue has a, a kind of fungus that grows inside it, this endophyte, which helps the plant. It's a symbiotic relationship between the endophyte huh. and the grass. However, that endophyte is generally toxic to ruminants. So, you know, Wonderful. we're going to have animals which include ruminants. Yeah. So we don't want to poison them. Yeah. So it's kind of, that's, that's not good. So for a while, they came out with endophyte-free tall fescues, um, which did poorly. Um, and then, more recently, there is this variety called Max-Q, which is, uh, it does have an endophyte in it, but it's a ruminant-friendly endophyte. So, so I paid the extra coin. I got a whole bunch of that. We've been planting that as well as, like, some uh, orchard grass and um, some uh, brome. Uh, and and uh, there's a few. I mean, the other thing is, is, like, as a gardener in general, I think it's always good to keep some annual rye on hand. And okay. uh, it's an old gardener's trick to like, you know, uh, uh, as fall is approaching and you've got all this bare soil and you throw down this annual rye, it grows to be like four to six inches tall before the first frost hits. So then it's an instant mulch. This doesn't necessarily answer the question, but I, I guess the thing is, is that uh, I, I think that grasses are oftentimes the best. And, and you're going to mix yeah. with your grasses, you're going to mix in a lot of other stuff. You know, but yeah. they make a real webby root. And, of course, grasses uh, are, are like the worst possible thing to have growing under uh, any kind of fruit tree. And so you, you need to eventually get rid of all the grasses. So, like, I remember visiting the Bullock Brothers Farm, like, I don't know, maybe uh, eight years ago or so. And they had this one-acre patch of garden. It was all flat garden. And and they were growing rhubarb all around the outside. And and so uh, what they were trying to do is eliminate all grass from in this one acre. And I think I visited them like three years later, and they had stopped trying. <laughs> What is the rhubarb doing? I don't understand the rhubarb. Well, the rhubarb puts out these enormous leaves, and so it kind of makes it so that there's this three-foot-wide area that, because usually nothing grows under a rhubarb. Oh, okay. It just, it, it just puts out so, such a dense, dense shade that nothing grows under rhubarb. Plus, the gotcha. leaves themselves also kind of act as a bit of a deterrent um, so then the idea was is that now they've got a border that the, the grass isn't going to try and, and come through. Uh, 
So if a graft puts out a rhizome and pops up under the rhubarb, then that little rhizome is not going to do well and is going to die. Gotcha. So, so it didn't work. I, I, you know, I, I didn't get all of I If they told me, I don't remember it. And so the, the key is, is that grass is everywhere. And, and frankly, we want to bring our ruminants through our gardens. And so, you know, we need to find a way to have grass and not grass at the same time. Now, um, there are places where, in fact, I visited this one farm where uh, there was like, it was in Olympia, Washington. And uh, Wild Time Farm. Um, and uh, when I was there, there was this one ravine that they had just covered in black plastic. And so there was a particular kind of grass that they wished to utterly eliminate. Now, my guess is, is that they went to, they bought a lot of plastic and they put a lot of time in, and they, you know, had to keep bringing the plastic back to cover everything up for a long, long time, and the plastic started to fall apart. Then they probably spent an enormous amount of time trying to find all the bits of plastic to get it out of there, and it probably did not do what they wanted to do. But I, I didn't, I haven't been back there since. Um, I think they were trying to get rid of a, a special kind of reed grass which is kind of funny because later I went on a tour to this other place where they were trying to grow more of it because it made such an excellent cattle fodder. So they're, you know, they're, they're feeding it to the, the cattle. It's like uh, this was the only thing that was still growing in the middle of summer over in this one semi-swampy spot. So, um, and it was apparently this excellent, excellent seed. Reed canary grass. So, um, I, I kind of feel like growing lots of different kinds of grasses is oftentimes a, a great thing. But, of course, when you're trying to grow a magnificent garden, grasses are not our friend, and then we're trying to discourage it. And, um, you know, by that time, the webby roots have already done their webby roots thing, and now we're going to grow a whole lot of other things. And so we can, um, you know phase out the grasses and and grow all of our awesome garden plants. Ta da nice. a little bit of chop and drop situation. I think here's what I'm, I'm gonna qualify my answer, but I think that there might be better things out there. Other things that have amazing webby roots but are not grasses that maybe, mm-hmm. you know, people should use. I I, I think it'd be great to get a thread going out of permies about this and see what it might be because there, I yeah. do know that there are non-grass plants, and, and you know, grasses are so difficult to get out of your system. On the other hand, it's like those things that are the most invasive are usually some of our favorite permaculture plants. Yeah. And if grass is growing in a system where you don't want it, that's your invasive. And then we're going to find things that will grow better than those grasses. Or we will chop and drop, get rid of them, give something else a head start. Okay. All right. Moving right along. 
This is also from Mike Holmes. Uh, he says, if I use freshly cut wood, how long would it take to get the characteristic sponge effect of a proper hugoculture bed? I think that you will see like hardly any of that effect the first year, but maybe mm -hmm. a little bit. And then you'll start to see more of it the second year. And then the third year will be pretty darn dreamy. Now, okay. of course, it's going to depend greatly on how big the logs are. So, um, so I, I could go with the answer, it depends. But um, if you're using a bunch of logs that are like two feet in diameter, then it's going to take longer. Um, but the effect is going to also last decades. So I, I think the bigger logs that you can use, the better in general. But if they're already rotten, that's great. But if it's freshly cut, because that's another thing, too, is if you've got freshly cut wood that's two feet in diameter, I would think you'd be able to find something better to do with it, like put it under a sawmill or something. Um, yeah. But, you know, if it's going, I kind of feel like Hugo culture is one of the last places to put wood. You know, the, the, the first thing being like, okay, can I build something out of it? And then the next thing being like, can I burn it for firewood? And and then it's like, uh, uh, and if I can't really burn it, if if, it, if there's if the quality of the wood is so low that it can't be used for firewood, then it's like, okay, you're going into the hugel culture, buddy. Yeah. Okay. I think that covers that. All right. This podcast is continued in part three.